0: I want you to imagine that a law is passed in the county where you live which makes it illegal to be a Christian. Anyone who's found to be a follower of Christ will be interrogated and if found guilty, arrested and incarcerated. Can you imagine that? Tomorrow morning, you're on your way out to work when you're met by two men from the local authorities that have heard that you went to church here and so they have to question you now. Uh, after an initial interview, they decide there's enough evidence to bring you to trial. And so you're going to have to sit before a judge and a jury to determine whether you are, in fact, a Christian. But at this trial, two things. First of all, you're not allowed to testify on your behalf. You can't say anything at all about what you believe. They're not going to listen to you. That's the first thing. The second thing is nothing that you do on Sunday counts. It's only what your life is like between Monday and Saturday that will be considered. They send out a group to investigate by interviewing your friends, the people that you know at school or at work, or they interview your family members or your associates. They take a look at your calendar, how you use your time. They even go into your bank account to see how you use your money. And at the end, they present a case, and here's the question. Will there be enough evidence to convict you of being a follower of Christ's or not. Now this question was put to me the summer after I graduated from college, and I believed in Jesus then, and I loved him, but when that question was asked of me, I realized, you know what, I might not have enough to prove that I actually follow Jesus if all you looked at was how I lived from Monday to Saturday. Not because I was a bad person doing bad things, it's just that I wasn't doing anything that actually stood out as the kind of thing a follower of Christ would do. Uh, I imagined some of my friends who didn't believe in Jesus and thought, you know, no one would be able to tell the difference between the two of us if I couldn't speak up on my behalf. That question burned me a bit. And it got me thinking on a course that really changed everything for me. And I'm so grateful for the change it brought about. I raised that question tonight in hopes that for some of us, and maybe all of us, and me too, that it would be the kind of question that would burn us like a refiner's fire, burns metal that needs to be refined in order to be useful in the hands of the master. God wants to make of you, each of you, something useful in the world, and in order to do so, he has to burn away the dross, and the questions that we put to ourselves can do that, if we're open to them. And so this evening, the question we'll consider is what difference does my faith make? Not what do I say about what I believe, but really... How does my faith change me as a person from Monday to Saturday? Not what I say about my beliefs, but my way of living. Uh, The questions that maybe you can put to yourself are, do I spend my time differently than I would if I didn't have faith? Uh, Do I spend my money differently Do I use the skills and talents that God has given me in a way that is distinct because of what I believe? Do I relate to the world differently, to my family and my friends differently than I would if I were not a follower of Jesus? Do I see the people around me with the same eyes that everyone else looks at them? Do I see myself differently because of what I believe about Jesus? What would happen if the people that are around me more often than anyone else were asked about my faith Would they even know that I'm a Christian? Now, if some of these questions burn a little bit, okay, let them burn you because God wants to refine every one of us. He wants to change us by having having these questions put to us uh, even in this hour that we would ask ourselves, what difference does it actually make that I believe? And the heat for the refining process is gonna come from our friend James. Uh, whose book is filled with burning questions. In chapter two, verse 14, we're gonna follow an argument he unfolds to put this question to the people he wrote to in hopes of refining their faith. Now look at what comes up in verse 14 of chapter two. This is what James writes. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if you say you have faith but do not have works? Can faith save you? James is envisioning a particular set of people when he asks this question. He imagines a gathering like this who've come together who would say, yes, of course we believe in Jesus, but he knows because of the reports he's heard that there are many who would say, it does not matter at all what you do. It only matters what you believe. I have faith, and yet I don't live in a way that is any different. If I were on trial, no one would know. The key to what James is asking here is in the phrase, if you say you have faith. He's imagining someone whose faith is only something which they say. It's only words. And the question that he puts to that person is, what good is that? And it's a question which we ought to put to ourselves, not in every way, because each of us will have some measure of faith that changes us in the world, but maybe you have some ways right now in your own life where your faith is not resulting in what you would expect it to, and the question to put to yourself there is, well, what good is it then? And the answer, strictly speaking, is it's not good if it doesn't result in anything visible. And James illustrates that by painting a picture of what he means Look at verse 15, if a brother or sister is naked and lacks daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm, and eat your fill, and yet do not supply their bodily needs, what is the good of that? Imagine it, here's a person who lacks shelter, basic shelter, they can't keep themselves, Uh, warm from the elements. They're cold and they're hungry because they're impoverished. And then someone who says they have faith in Jesus comes to that person and says, go and eat your fill. What is the good of that? You can see there's no good in that, right? Go and keep warm. Well, they can't keep warm. What good is it to say that? No good. Be at peace. Imagine for a moment that you are a person who is under-resourced. You can't, provide for yourself, someone who's got everything they need and then some comes along and says, hey, eat as much as you possibly need, be warm, Uh, get out of here, go in peace. What's the good of that? Do you see it? Not only is it no good, it's also bad. Can you imagine how condescending to be told by a person that you should eat everything you need when you can't? Can you imagine that? And how about this? And James certainly imagines this. How about you're a third party watching this exchange unfold, and you don't know Jesus, but you've heard that the person here who's speaking to the impoverished person in this way believes in Jesus, what does their behavior tell you about the kind of God they believe in? You're so moved, you're speechless. (laughs) Can you imagine how offensive it would be? When faith is only something that we say it is good for nothing. It is good for nothing for the person to whom we speak words that come from faith but that are not accompanied by action. And according to James, it doesn't even have the positive influence that faith is meant to have on us in that it cannot save us either. And this is pointed and this is powerful. But what James wants us to see is that just as words alone are no good for the person who is cold and hungry, saying you have faith without it making any positive difference in how you live in the world is worse than good for nothing. And I mean it, not just good for nothing, worse than good for nothing. Do you know the impact that hypocrisy has on people who wonder about Christian faith and then they see it in someone? And if you're thinking of another hypocrite Please put them out of your mind and and try to see if there's some of that in you. What James says about this way of being, the kind of faith which would never render a guilty verdict if you weren't allowed to speak up on your behalf and nothing that happened on Sunday was considered, is in verse 17. Look, so faith by itself, if it has no works, is dead. The kind of faith which is something that you only say is like a dead thing. And that means it's not capable of producing any visible outcome in the world that is positive. It has no capacity for dynamic change. It doesn't help the hungry person and it doesn't save the person who says she has it. It has no dynamic power. It does nothing good. The only impact it has is negative, like when a dead thing begins to decompose. James chose that metaphor on purpose. The smell is repulsive because faith, which is just words, is useless and it repels people who see it from Christ. True faith should attract people to Jesus. Faith, which is just words, pushes them away. Do you see how James has the capacity to burn a little bit? It's meant to. It's pretty strong. Wouldn't you say? James knows that he's speaking in a strong way, and he anticipates an objection at this point because he knows that there are people who are gathered who've heard about the way it works with his brother. By the way, James was Jesus' earthly brother, one of four. He knew that his brother saved people by grace out of the love that he loved all of humanity with. And James knew that the people he was speaking to knew about the love of Christ. In fact, and I'll show you this in just a few minutes, he knew that they'd begun to make a claim upon God's love which turned it upside down so that it wasn't what it was meant to be. But anticipating an objection about his strong words about faith on the one hand and works on the other, James addresses it in verse 18. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. James knows that there's going to be a listener who wants to draw a sharp distinction between faith on the one hand and works on the other. Faith is one thing, they'll say, and then works are another thing. Some people have faith, others have a gift for doing good works. Just because I don't do good works doesn't mean my faith isn't strong. You have works and I have faith. Here's how James responds to this person, verse 18 uh, and following. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I by my works will show you my faith. You believe that God is one? You do well. Even the demons believe, and they shudder. Okay, here is where James is very pointed. Someone in the gathering right now said, no, he didn't. Yes, he did. (laughs) Sarcasm is not common in scripture, and I promise I will not do that again for one more year. (laughs) James is being sarcastic here when he says, you do well. Because the person who reasons like this does not do well. Because, and this, underline this in your mind, the kind of faith which thinks that works don't matter, is the very same kind of faith that demons have. The only difference between the person who thinks he can have faith without action and a demon, according to James, is that at least the demon has enough sense to be afraid of God. Uh, James continues in verse 20, Do you want to be shown, you senseless person, that faith apart from works is barren? James is not regarding as primary the feelings of the people he's addressing here because he believes that whether their faith matters or not in life is more important than what they feel. And so he can address them as senseless because it is senseless to reason that it doesn't matter what difference my faith makes right here because as long as I believe the right things, then I'm going to be okay. James says that is not how it works. And to show it in particular he draws upon two figures that would have been well known to these listeners, Abraham and Rahab. These were folks who were in the history of God's people exemplary of the fact that real faith, get this now, real faith always results in real works. Faith which doesn't result in real works is not real faith. It is dead or, this is a second metaphor James uses, it is barren. That means it can't give birth To anything at all. It doesn't lead to something which lives in the world in such a way that a difference can be seen because of its life. And now, I want your eyes on yourself for a moment, and I want you to understand that God wants your faith to make a difference in your life. Partly for you, but because it makes a difference for you, for the world which God so loved that He gave His only Son to redeem. The world that we find ourselves in is so beloved by God that he gave his son to rescue it and the way that comes about is when people like you and me who have faith begin to have a faith which is not barren but which gives birth to good works in the world. When we have a faith which is not dead but rather alive and that's what God wants and whether it becomes that or not, listen now, depends on what we do in response to the gift of faith which God has given to us in Christ. And and it is up to us to respond. And James knows that. And he wants us to know it. And he wants us to know it so that our faith makes a difference in the world, out there, and this is very pointed, so that it makes a difference for us. So that it does, in fact, as he asks in the very first verse we considered, verse 14, so that it saves us. So that our faith is a kind of faith which saves us, which means a faith that works. And this is in, in James' mind, down in verse 24, when he puts what is like a barb in the conscience and mind and theological attitudes of every Christian who comes to the Bible and wants to know about God. Look at what it says in verse 24. You see, James says, that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Now here, if you're an individual who has spent time studying the New Testament, it's like you hear the sound when a record stops and the needle is dragged across it. You know the sound? Can you hear it? You don't know whether to chuckle or to just keep quiet, so let's just keep quiet. Right? Wait, hold on. Here we have to pause because this passage of Scripture right here feels like it doesn't fit with other passages from Scripture, which those who know the Bible well will know. And here I want to pause on our consideration of what difference our faith makes, and I want to take an aside and spend a few minutes here on how we make sense of of Scripture and how our doctrines are are constructed. Uh, Doctrines are our systematic way of thinking about God. And by the way, If you've never considered that you do already have a doctrine yourself when it comes to thinking about God and life, you do, and maybe you've never brought it out into the light. But this morning, let's do this for just a few minutes on this particular doctrine. In the Bible, it's the doctrine of soteriology. That word's not in Scripture. That is how we think about how a person is saved. The word justified is meant to cause you to think of yourself or any guilty person standing before a righteous and holy God. And the question is, how is any person uh, regarded as innocent and acceptable by the pure and perfect holy God when all of us have sin in our lives? How is a person saved? How does faith becomes saving faith. That's the, doctrine, the question uh, that is addressed by the doctrine of soteriology. And here, we appear to have an answer that is very straightforward. A person is saved, justified, by the good works that he or she does. Not by faith, by works. Does it sound like it doesn't fit with what you've learned or heard in church now and then? Yes or no? Yes, thank you for helping me out here. That's because... Here we stumble upon one fact of interpreting Scripture, and it is this, that whenever you begin to construct a doctrine, you have to keep your eyes on the forest and not get distracted by the trees. And this is one tree which doesn't fit with other trees. Or to use a different metaphor, sometimes in Scripture, you can find one single passage which seems to pull this direction, and then another one which pulls in the opposite direction. And when you have two things which are connected and pulling in the opposite direction, what do you have in the middle? you have tension. And that runs throughout Scripture. I want you to look at this. This is what Paul says about the same subject in Romans 3.28. We hold that a person is justified by faith apart from works prescribed by the law. Do those two statements seem different to you? Of course they do. Do they seem to pull in the opposite direction? Yes, they do. And so the question for us as people who are going to approach the Scriptures intelligently is what do we do with this? And I want to help you here. I want to help you this morning, not only by pushing you to ask the question, what difference does my faith make, but also guiding you just a little bit this morning into how to come to the scripture when this is your question. And by the way, there are lots of other questions in the scripture in which you will find answers which pull in this direction, and then on the other hand, in this direction. How does God judge at the end? You'll find uh, answers in scripture that pull this way, and then in this way. Are people free? Or are they determined by God's sovereignty? You can find scriptures that will pull this way and that way. What are are the roles uh, in the church and who's allowed to fulfill them? Uh, You'll find tension in scripture around that one. Uh, How many people are going to be saved? You can find passages that make it seem like only a little bit. And then on the other hand, all. Which is it? Okay, which it is is its tension. And what's important for us to do to grow as disciples is to approach the complexity of scripture which we see here in these two and in many other places also with some guidance and intelligence. And so this morning, I wanna give you three bits of wisdom for how to approach tension like this. Here's the first one. When you come across tension in scripture, be careful not to take it away too quickly. And I'm gonna tell you why. You are always gonna be tempted to take it away in your own personal favor so that God can't do what God wants to do with that tension for you personally. Do you see it? You're going to find tension and you're going to choose the side that makes you feel better about yourself so that you can look down on the people who fall on the other side. And when you do that, scripture doesn't do what God wants it to do with you. And so the moment you see tension, don't resolve it too quickly. Here's the second thing that I'm going to, uh, instruct you on when you see that tension. It is this that before you give up, you must know that light will always come from a careful consideration of the context. That is, when you ask, Where is the passage that I'm considering written and who was it written to? you will often find light that will illuminate the tension. Was anyone here just a few weeks back when Mitchell Schwatt taught us about how to understand the Messiah? in context. Yes, raise your hand if you saw that. If you haven't seen it, go online and watch it. You'll see the virtue of interpreting bits of scripture by keeping the context in mind. All right, let's put these two to the test. The second one in Romans was written by Paul. Listen now. Paul was addressing a gathering of folks in Rome who were being pressured and misguided by false teachers to believe that obedience to the law was a condition for salvation. That's who he was addressing. People who are being told, unless you follow all the rules, you will not be saved. That's not the people that James is addressing. James, on the other hand, is addressing people who say, we're Christians and we're saved, and therefore, it doesn't matter what we do from now on, we're saved. And that's a totally different group. Do you see it? And one group needs to hear one thing, and the other needs to hear something else. Paul needs to say, good works have no role in getting us into relationship with god it is faith in trusting yourself to him which saves and now this morning if you're constantly trying to be better than you were so that God will accept you, you need to listen to what Paul wrote in Romans. That is, you're not saved by being good. You're saved by faith. Trust God and you'll be okay. Some of you need to hear the exact opposite thing. Some of you in here have given up on trying to be good and you've just abandoned yourself to being like everyone else in the world. And what you need to hear is what James says. You're not gonna be saved by saying you have faith if you're not doing good, you better let the fire burn under you to scare you into moving forward in faith. You might think, oh my gosh, is this works righteousness? I thought we were saved by faith. Would you please not listen to me, but go to the Scripture and let the tension which is there push you forward in faith, yes? Here's the third bit of guidance. Let God teach you through the tension. And I I promise you that if you will do this, what you will find is that God the refiner will burn away the dross that prevents him from making you into the vessel that he wants you to be. So that when you find your theology or your biblical viewpoint or your ethics or your self-understanding challenged by something you come across in scripture, you should pause and actually say a prayer like this, God, what do you want to do with me through this tension? Uh, God, what are you wanting to challenge in me? Because that's what God does through his word. He does not confirm everything we've ever believed when we go to the Bible. Instead, he challenges challenges us to make more of us. James knew that this tension here had the potential to push his readers into the kind of change that would make them vessels of God's light in the world. And what he hoped for is that the self-reflection that they were prodded toward by what he said would cause them to grow in a way that God wanted them to grow. Leading them forward into the kind of faith which made a difference in their lives and then through them in the life of the world where they had been scattered. Now it's time for us to think about ourselves here in the room, each of you to think of yourself and to follow the burn of this question forward and ask yourself, how is my faith right now not making the difference that it should make? not in order to feel bad about yourself. That's not what James or God wants at all. But rather to push you forward so that, and here's the key, so that your faith stops being something that you say and begins to become something which you do right where you need to do something differently. And I'm confident of this, that every one of you in here, if you think on the one hand of what you believe about Jesus, and then reflect critically on your own life Monday through Saturday right now, you will surely see at least one and probably more steps that your faith should be leading you to take. Because you believe this, you should be moving forward here. And this is the key. And I'm asking you to be mature here. Your faith will not automatically push you forward. God hasn't made us like that. But rather your faith, which is God's gift to you, fully out of grace, will open every door that needs to be opened, will remove every barrier to your forward movement so that you are free to go forward in the way that your faith is inviting you to go as long as your faith is not just something you say but is alive and vital and able to give birth in you to the things that ought to be given birth to. Do you have a sense in your mind right now of how your faith should make more of a difference than it does? If you do, show me some sign. Some of you do. Okay, good. What I've done is is very simply identified five of the kinds of forward movement that faith which is alive might make if only you yourself would take a step. And I'm gonna give you all five so that at least one of them can be the thing which God uses this morning to move you forward in faith. And again, it's going to be up to you to see your faith make a difference. You have to take the step. I have chosen five, not because there's only five. These are the ones that occurred to me. At at least every one of you should have one, which is a step for you forward. Some of you, maybe two or three. If you are incredibly lame, then all five will apply to you. Okay, here they are. The first difference which faith should make when it's alive. Help someone in need. And I choose this first because the illustration which James used was an illustration where there was someone in need and faith was not alive because it didn't help that person. And so any one of you who comes across a person in need, maybe it's a classmate at school or someone at work or a family member who's difficult, okay? In that moment, when you recognize their need, your faith will come alive when you choose to help them. And there are innumerable ways to help the people around you who are in need. If you're thinking of someone whose need is like a black hole and thinking of it makes you want to scream and run away, I know there's at least one of you in here who have a person like that in your life, right? Don't try to help that person, okay? Think of someone else. Maybe you can help that person, I don't know. (laughs) But think of someone who needs some help. And faith which makes a difference helps them. Okay, that's the first one. Here's the second one. Trust God in uncertainty. How many of you have some uncertainty in your life right now that is making it difficult for you to feel at ease or peace in your life? And if only you could trust God, it would be better. Anyone feeling that? And have you ever thought, but I can't trust God. That's just the point. I can't force myself to trust. Slow down a minute. As long as trust is a spontaneous feeling, then I agree with you, but that's not what trust is. If trust were just a feeling that happened automatically, follow me here, it wouldn't be trust right? If it was easy to go on hoping and believe, then trust wouldn't be required. Trust is the decision to go on believing, go on hoping, even though the immediate circumstances don't provide you what you need automatically to feel that. But now I'm inviting you to have real faith by choosing to trust right in the midst of uncertainty. Be brave, be defiant, of your circumstances and say, I don't feel like it at all, but I'm still going to trust. That's what faith does, and you're invited to do that. Uh, Just a few weeks ago, there was a woman who came up after the service. She had a bright, big smile on her face. She told me, Christian, I have some news. The company that I work for has been acquired by another organization, a much bigger company. It's a company that's right in town here. Maybe some of you work for this company. And I thought she was going to say, but I'm being retained. And I said, do you still have your job? She said, I don't know. And probably not. Now she was smiling really big. I thought, is your boss terrible? (laughs) She said, no, I love my job. But you know, I've been taking to heart the things that I'm learning here at church. And I've decided to trust anyway. And and you know what, Christian? I found a few co-workers who also seemed confident even though their future was uncertain, and we got to talking, and it turns out they're also Christians. We talked about the churches that we go to. Now we check in each morning, and the other workers in our group are coming to us and saying, why aren't you guys freaking out? And I got to tell them about my faith in Christ. This church has really helped me build. Isn't that beautiful? Beautiful. So that's what it looks like. That's a second step forward that maybe God is inviting you to take. Here's a third one. I bet every one of us could practice this third one. It is to practice generosity. And by this, let me be very practical. Give money away. I know James, if he were here, would say, thank you for bringing that up. If Jesus were here, he'd say the same because Jesus talked about money an awful lot. As long as we live in the world where there are problems that can be solved with financial resources and there are others who have more than they need, then it will be important for the Christian community to practice generosity by giving money away. When I first arrived here as a pastor at this church, uh, the the elders and staff talked together. We said, listen, right now, we don't quite have all the money we need. However, we also believe that as long as we're a church that professes faith in Jesus, we should start giving some money away. And we decided together, let's give 10% of everything that's given to Renaissance Church away, and we'll live as a church on the the other 90%. Have you heard the term tithing? We decided that in order for this church to reach its goal as a mission, we need everybody who can in this church to decide to tithe, to give 10% of what they have to this mission. And so we can never ask that unless we're doing that ourselves. And so we started in year one by giving 2% of everything that was given to the church away. We said, let's increase it by 2% each year. This year, it's going to be 6% of everything that's given will be given away. When I talked about Guatemala at Easter, if you heard me do that. That's partly funded by uh, 10, uh, 6% of what's given this year here, but we're going to get to 10. Maybe you live right now in 100% of what you've got because your life requires it, and I know a lot of people are in that place, but maybe the challenge here for you is to say, all right, next year it's going to be, actually no, not next year, this year it's going to be 98% of what I take home, and I'm going to set aside two. Would you consider that? with the plan that, okay, in the year after, it's going to be four, and so that five years from now, I'm also giving away 10%. If you do that, your faith will make a difference for you, which you feel, and for the world, in that you fund a community like this or some other organization that helps others. Will you be able to survive? Can I tell you, yes, guaranteed. God blesses people who are generous. Do you know that? Uh, People who try to get blessed... Get more money by giving money away. I can't make any promises for them. Probably uh, they should uh, change their orientation. But anyone who practices generosity will find that they're free from the tyranny of the false God of money and free to be active in their faith in the world. That's a third step that you can take. Two more. Here's the fourth. See yourself as God does. And I know this is hard for people, A lot of Christians accept God's grace for others, but it's hard for them to accept it for themselves. So if that's you, here is a step that you should take in faith. It is to say, because God loves me, I will choose to love me. Because God has decided to look at me with grace, I will decide to look at me with grace. Because God said that he loved me so much that he gave his only son for me. Well, then I'll stop being so hard on me and I'll look at myself through the very same eyes that God must look at me through since he loved me just that much. And that is a step of faith. I'm inviting you to take that right now this morning to say I am no longer gonna be so hypercritical of myself. I'm not gonna use the world's value system to judge me any more. I'm gonna use the value system of the one who made the world. And he says I'm great and he loves me. That's the fourth. And then the last one is to take that same vision and use it to look at others. See others as God does. And here, I end here because this one maybe is the first step for the Christian community to become the light that God means it to be in our very contentious times. So that what people would think of when they think of Christians is those are the people who regard others with such unconditional grace acceptance kindness and benevolence those are the people who always have an open door for you no matter what you've done wrong those are the ones who look at you even if you don't agree with them or like them and love flows out of their eyes what's the explanation for it i don't know for sure but gosh their god must be a god of love because they don't regard the lines that everyone else draws they seem to have erased those lines and they embrace people and love them, their smile is a sign that God must be good. Who is the God who loves through them like that? Any one of these five, but especially this fifth one, is the invitation that faith makes, the faith which works, the faith which saves others and us, the faith which is alive and giving birth to what God means our faith to give birth to. Let's join our hearts together in prayer and ask God to bring that faith alive in us even now. God, we love you, and we thank you for your servant, James. We thank you for the way that he was so brave and bold to press challenging questions forward to those who Uh, gathered together in your name and who were being built up uh, so that they would be refined and made into the kind of material that would be malleable and pure in your hands. God, what we want is for our faith to make a difference, for it not to be something only that we say, but rather to be the kind of thing which we do in the world that attracts others to you and your goodness and frees us for the kind of life you made us for. We ask now that as we... Uh, as we have gathered in this place, that your spirit would be here to build us up. Uh, We pray that you would help us love in a way that shows your love in the world around us. And we ask for this in Jesus' name. Amen.